Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors. And today I have a very special guest, Lachlan Vidler, who is a buyer's agent and the founder of Atlas Property Group. Now, Lachlan has a pretty unique background, actually being in the Australian Navy as a maritime logistics officer straight out of high school. We have a chat to him about his experience in the Defence Forces and how he transitioned himself into property investing and becoming a property professional. He's got a very long resume with a Bachelor of Business and Masters of Commerce. He's also studying a Masters of Property Investment and Development, so he's a very switched on individual. We take a deep dive into his past, the way he analyzes properties and all of his tips for property investors wanting to get the most out of their portfolio. It's an awesome interview with Lockie and here he is now. Lachlan Vidler, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm excited to be here and have a chat. I'm excited too because I've read a little bit about your bio and you're coming from a slightly different angle than most of our guests, I would say. But before we dive into that, Lockie, what uh, what uh, do you specialise in and who are you? Give us a bit of a rundown. Well, I mean, thanks for the introduction or a small introduction. As you said, my name is Lachlan Bidler. Um, I, I'm the founder and director of Atlas Property Group, which is an exclusive buyer's agency representing only the buyer's interests in a real estate transaction. And we specialize in uh, residential investment property. Uh, we, we look nationally, we take on clients nationally, and we do our best to help our clients uh, build long-term wealth through property. Beautiful. We're going to, of course, dive into that because this is a property investing podcast after all, but not before we take a couple of left turns. Uh, Speaking of which, what were the posters on the bedroom wall growing up? I had lots of sport, lots of sports teams. I think I had a diehard poster as well. Uh, I had, uh, I think I had the Australian cricket team. I think I had the Wallabies uh, and then a diehard poster. I think that was most of it. Love it. And the poor Wallabies have been in the news because Qantas has just yanked the sponsorship from them. Oh, uh, so that's some sad times. Yeah, yeah, I guess you can't blame them. But that's another that's another episode. What about um, property? How did you first get started in property and what was your first investment? Well, I mean, I think more broadly, I sort of I always had a big interest in investing. I invested in shares from when I was a young age. Uh, and then as I got older and you know, had a job and had some more income, I quickly realized that property was a, a pathway that I wanted to take. And I think it was, I think the sole reason I really looked at it as such a strong way to build wealth was the ability to leverage and use other people's money. You know, you can, you can put down a relatively small amount of cash or equity and then be able to get an asset that's worth, you know, a number of times more than what you put down and then get growth on that asset. So I just saw it as an incredible opportunity for long-term wealth creation. Um, and then for my first investment, I, I did what a lot of people do uh, and I had to start small and I bought a, uh, a little three-bedroom three house up in southeast Queensland and it's performed pretty well for me, um, had some good growth. It was bought... Uh, for a good price and we've had tenants the whole time and it's been a, a very solid first investment really. And what made you select that one in particular? Is there well, anything that stood out? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I mean, I actually had help. I, I, I used a buyer's agent for my first transaction so um, I feel like I've, I've got some good knowledge of the industry from the outset um, and, you know, I, I recognised 
before I'd sort of done a lot of my education because I've got a, a business bachelor's degree and a finance master's degree. I knew I needed some help. I knew I needed some professional advice. And, um, and I did a lot of due diligence on the reports and the information that was given to me. So I absolutely qualified everything that was, that was, um, that was reported to me. But when everything stacked up, I thought this is a great investment and I'd better jump at it. That's awesome and good on you for seeing the value in a buyer's agent uh, because I, I really think they're, they're undervalued in, in what they do and, of course, um, you better agree because you've started your own brand as well. Before we, um, before we dive into that, I, I, I want to satisfy um, my inner nine-year-old boy who's very excited to talk about you joining the Navy straight out of school as a maritime warfare officer. That sounds like a pretty cool title. What does that actually mean and what made you join the Navy? Well, um, I think every nine-year-old boy always thinks about, you know, joining the military and playing with guns and big toys and everything. And I guess I, I just kept going down and never let the nine-year-old out um, or stop the nine-year-old. Um, but, I mean, the title is is possibly a bit cooler than what the job actually is. So, the, the very basic way to describe it is the maritime warfare officer is uh, the cap the ship captain's representative on the bridge, and they control uh, the ship. They execute the navigation plan, so where we're sailing to, uh, and then a few other little small tasks around the place. Um, and then the warfare officer you can go on and specialize in different things, where you go and get into some of the more hardcore warfare. But um, at the sort of at the um, the base level maritime warfare role, that's that's what it is. I'm picturing, uh, of course, all my military knowledge is really based on uh, the movies. I'm picturing the the chappy that sort of stands to and says, "Attention on deck!" when the captain comes in. How close are you to that bloke, or are you that bloke? <laughs> Pretty close. That's uh, that'll usually be one of the uh, the senior sailors helping out and assisting the uh, the maritime warfare officer. But uh, if they're not around, it'll definitely be you saying that. <laughs> what about the uh, all ahead full or right full rudder? That's maybe a submarine. I think. No, uh, no. Well, I mean, that's that. Those sort of things they're called engine orders, and that's definitely um, something that the maritime warfare officer does. Ah, there we go. Yeah, so you've got end. it. <laughs> now you uh, you saw some action for want of a better term. You were deployed on two operations. Is there anything that uh, is open to? Um, me not having a freedom of information request signed off? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, you're, you're absolutely making it sound like it was uh, bigger than what it was. Um, I, could, I can tell you about, about all of them, um, well, the two of them. Um, so I deployed on two operations. Um, one was called Operation Resolute, which is Australia's uh, border protection operation. So uh, a lot of, you know, it's over the years, it's got some, some bad press uh, and, you know, people have their own views on, refugees and things like that but at its core it's about making sure that people are safe at sea and making sure that people are in seaworthy vessels and helping people who get themselves into very unfortunate circumstances so that's what that one was all about and um, you patrol up around the the northern areas of, of australia and moving across australia has one of the biggest uh areas of responsibility in the world i think that 
I can't remember the statistic, but it's um, it's something like Australia has responsibility for like twenty percent of the world's ocean, something crazy like that. Yeah, Con- considering it's a big our size, place to play capture the flag, isn't it? Exactly right, and it's just it's crazy that for a nation of twenty five million people and a military that you know is definitely not that size either, um, that we you know we have responsibility for that much of the world's oceans. Um, mm. But uh, but that was the first one, and then the second one, which was. Uh, probably a lot more interesting. It was called Operation Render Safe. And we did that up in Bougainville, which is an autonomous region of Papua New Guinea. Um, and it was all about Australia and coalition nations uh, or allied nations, to be, to be exact, from World War II, going back into the South Pacific and removing the explosive remnants of war that have been left over. So right. as you can imagine, yeah. <laughs> World War- I'm getting to it. Yeah, World War II, we, we left lots of um, explosives and bombs and things like that, grenades, and all these South Pacific islands are just littered with them. And it's a pretty bad look, and it's it, it's not a lot of responsibility from countries as privileged as we are. Um, so we recognise that, and we, we go back usually annually, and we'll do um, you know a couple of weeks or a couple of months of clearing out some of these explosive remnants. It's like clean up Australia Day with hand grenades. <laughs> what could go wrong? I think maybe you should take that to the Defence Department and see if that can be the new marketing slogan. <laughs> Poor Ian Kiernan's not with us anymore, but uh, I, I think he might even shy away from that stuff. <laughs> um, so you ended your career as a maritime logistics officer. So what was the, the change there and what was, the, what was that role about? Well, um, you know, when I joined the Navy, I sort of always knew that I was probably never going to stick around and become an admiral. Um, I, I thought I always had an inkling that I wanted to go into business in some sort, uh, in some sort of respect. And as I was sort of moving down uh, my career, I sort of realised that while the job of a maritime warfare officer is is pretty cool and it's a lot of fun. Unfortunately, there's not many warships that you can drive if you become a civilian. So there wasn't too many transferable skills that I was going to have. So I sort of looked around and I had a business undergraduate degree and, and a finance master's and I sort of looked at some of the roles that might appeal to me and I found logistics and it sort of really tapped into my education and I realized, you know, there's everything runs on logistics in the outside world. So it's going to give me some awesome skills. Um, so I decided to make the jump. And what made you want to leave? Was it sort of what you found when you joined or from the beginning you thought this is a bit of experience, it's kind of like a productive gap year, but my plans are really in the private business world? Yeah, I think it was a lot of that. I mean, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who will be able to um, identify with with this that, you know, you start a job, whatever job it is, and, you know, you kind of just keep doing it until one day you wake up and it just doesn't feel as right or as enjoyable as it was before. And, you know, that can be for lots of reasons. You know, I think a lot of the time it's personal growth and needing something new. And that was sort of what it was for me. I just sort of wanted to explore some different avenues. I think I wanted to start to um, explore that business side of, of my interests. And I achieved a lot in my time in the military and I, I guess I just sort of saw it as, as my time to look around and, and see what else was out there for me. 
Speaking of what you achieved while you were in the military, you were completing your degree on assignment, I hear, whilst being stalked by the Chinese Navy in the South China Sea. Now, that um, that doesn't strike... I mean, we're all suffering with working from home, you know, the dogs barking, the mowers going, but very few of us are stalked by the Chinese Navy. How did that uh, take the edge off the studies? Um, great question. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it's... um. You, you you have this great way to make everything sound a lot cooler than what it was, Mike. But um, you know, <laughs> I should be a wingman, mate. Oh, absolutely, you should. Maybe you should have hit up Tom Cruise for a spot in Top Gun too. I think you could have. You'd be able to have a great role there. Um, you know but, what? I could I, I could assure you that if we were bachelors uh, hunting for for ladies, you were the maritime warfare officer, and I was the quantity surveying tax depreciation guy. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't be uh, seeing a lot of action. I don't know. People love money, and you probably save them a lot of it. So you could <laughs> you could be with a red hot chance there. Um, yeah, I think uh, so. When you're out uh, on the ocean, and, and you know you're doing um, the things that that navies do, all navies do. Um, there's a healthy, there's an absolutely healthy respect uh, for, for it's called good seamanship, and basically that means that people don't try and put other ships in danger. And, you know, you might do certain things, but you always um, understand that, that the safety of a ship and its crew are the priority. And um, stalked is maybe a strong word when we were up around around some of those contested areas uh, that, that, the, uh, that the Chinese have laid some claims over. Um, we, we just had one of their ships that, that came and monitored us and, and just made sure that we weren't doing anything untoward and, and they didn't do anything untoward us. And it was sort of like a, uh, a meeting of the minds with um, some ocean in between. So it was, uh, <laughs> it, it was an interesting experience and it was sort of interesting because everyone was a little bit heightened and, um, and everyone was, you know, a little bit on edge and it was, you know, it was a little bit, a little bit cool as well. Almost. It was, mm. it was such a unique experience, but um you know, everyone was so safe and there was nothing really going on and that was just such a unique environment that I'll always be able to think back on and, and, um, and, and you know, just have such a unique experience, I guess. Well, I must encourage you never to let the truth get in the way of a good story. So next time you're telling it, use the word stalked and, you know, red alert and DEFCON 5 and all that sort of stuff. That's that's what we want to hear. So from, from the Navy, you went um, into Deloitte as a strategy, a strategy and operations consultant. Now, of course, you had quite um, a lot of graduate, postgraduate qualifications um, at that point, but did you find it easy moving into the private sector with the military background? Was that sought after by private business? I think that there's uh, there's there's the the skills that people learn in the military are just incredible, and something that Australia the Australian military prides itself on is sort of being a jack of all trades and a master of none. Um, since that you know we've got such a small military compared to some other countries that have hundreds of thousands, you know, some some even have millions of people. So we have to be really good and proficient across a large number of areas. And when I was looking to make my transition, um, fortunately, there were quite a few private private sector companies and organisations that recognised that. Um, with some of my education, I, I sort of fantasised about maybe going into banking and doing some of the stuff there. Um, but for me, luckily... Um, I had yeah. Deloitte come and approach uh, approach me and, and said, you know, we, we really appreciate 
um, some of the skills that you've got. Um, would you like to see if there's a role that fits with us? And, and it turned out that there was. Beautiful. Now, so your formal studies were a Bachelor of Business and Master of Commerce. Was there a goal that you had in mind with those degrees or you just knew you were bound for business and those might be some some good bits of paper to collect? Well, the, the business undergraduate one, I think, was a lot of that. I always I always knew I, I loved business and, and the theory of business and, and uh, learning more about that. But uh, once I had that, I... I had a massive interest in finance, massive interest in investments, money, things like that, and I looked around on what I could what I could do, and I sort of realised that that I could actually do a degree in finance, and I went for that, and it was awesome. It was it was a great experience, and I think I was I was just really lucky that I got to do it through such a great institution, which was UNSW, um, with such a great reputation, and it taught me so many skills about. Um, investments and analysis and how to break down things, um, how to look at money, how to almost talk the language of money. So it was it was so invaluable for me. All very helpful skills for a buyer's agent as well, of course. But you're, you're also, um, you're racking up some more hex debt with a Masters of Property Investment and Development. Uh, are you some sort of educational masochist or is this just really evidence that property is the main passion in the sort of money side of things? I think, I think some people would probably argue the former. Uh, but but I think for me, it's funny, I actually enrolled into that degree before I'd even come up with the idea of, of Atlas Property Group. I saw it as something that was going to be great for my own property investing and my own uh, work with property developments. And I thought, you know what, this is amazing. I should get on, I should get on board with this because it is going to be just incredible for my own knowledge. And then once the idea for Atlas started to form, it was just like, a meeting of the minds again it was just it was incredible it was sort of like wow i can bring so much value to my clients not only understanding finance and investments but then being able to do it from a, a property specific lens it's just going to be great and i think that you know clients who can have that sort of expertise are really going to benefit from it i'm i'm sure that over your time you've seen you know, there's there's some people within the industry or there's lots of people within the industry that don't necessarily have any formal qualifications and it's a little bit, um, you know, it's a little bit of an unregulated industry. And I think that having people who have education in it, whatever the, whatever the education is, is just so important and, it, and it's what's great for giving value to clients and making sure that the industry as a whole keeps a good reputation. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that there's a lot of people within the industry that are actually asking for more regulation on themselves for, for that reason, because of the value of it. Uh, I think with, you know, masters of property, you'd be more educated than 99%, 99% of the buyer's agents out there. Um, annoyingly so, because I've only done six of my eight subjects and I deferred it a few years ago. Um, so I might, I might have to swap notes. Um, Absolutely. Now, you and your partner have uh, been investing in, in in properties for the last little while. Was that while you were in the military? Can you tell us a little bit about the the what and the where and the how and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, sure. Well, um, it's exactly like you said. My partner and I we've been investing for a few years. Uh, we've got them sort of quite spread out. Some in Queensland, uh, some in New South Wales, uh, and you know a, a mix of sort of city metropolitan and regional um 
it you know it, it for us it's always just been about building a great future life um about cementing our own um financial futures and you know i think like a lot of people you know we didn't earn a million dollars so we couldn't go out and buy the nicest house in a blue chip suburb of sydney as an investment and then be able to take on some of the negative gearing or the high levels of negative gearing that would be going on with that so we invested where we could with great metrics great future prospects and and they've all done very well for us um and and i think probably the biggest point just being that we did it as soon as we could with what we had i think a lot of people get worked up about you know i need to buy a five hundred thousand dollar house or i need to buy an eight hundred thousand dollar house and they spend so long waiting to make these investments that they think are going to be the best ones rather than looking at what they could do today and getting on board today and getting you know two or three years of growth in good markets now and and instead they wait and they miss a lot of the trains they find themselves constantly priced out of markets they want to be in and it's just sort of like a revolving door yeah and southeast Queensland, where you started, is is a region that has a relatively low price point, right? So, I mean, that would be similar to purchasing in many of the regions in Australia. So, so that was really the launching point for you is to is to get something that didn't cost you half a million dollars to get started. Absolutely, and I think you know it's as long as you know you you can't no property you purchase is going to go up ten percent every year. And some properties you purchase might not ever go up 10% in a year. But seeing properties going up, you know, 5 to 7% as a minimum um, quite consistently, I think is the bedrock for a really good property portfolio, particularly when you may be only putting down twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 and you're getting a three or $400,000 asset and getting the growth on that. You know, it's it, we're not all destined to be, you know, multi, multi, multi-millionaires. And that's okay. And some of us will get there. Some of us won't. But a lot of everyday Australians can absolutely create some long-term wealth through some of these cheaper markets today and see it grow over the next 20 to 30 years. And they will have a phenomenally comfortable life as they get older. And I think that people sometimes forget that. Yeah, I think it's easy to to look over the other side of the fence and some people definitely want to go big and be a billionaire, but the vast majority of people are going to retire on not enough money and that can be changed with a sensible strategy, right? Oh, I couldn't agree more. You know, part of my my finance postgrad studies was a lot of work to do with um, financial planning and financial advice. I'm, I'm not a fully qualified financial planner, but I've done a lot of the education around that. And it's just amazing. And it was such an eye-opener to me seeing how many people don't look to make small changes today to be able to get that better life. And I think a lot of it goes to you know the rise of things like social media, where you see these people showcasing what seems like a very affluent and happy and and you know large life but under the surface it's definitely not going to be how it's portrayed but um you know they think that they've got to go out and and their first property or their first investment's got to make them a million dollars in six months or it's got to cost a million dollars to make the first one rather than just slow steady growth and like you said too many people don't do it so they're retiring on not enough money. And I think there's a lot of people out there and probably quite a few listeners who might already be on things like the age pension or know people who are on the age pension. And, 
you know, it, it's not a lot of fun. It's not a lot of money. And, and it makes people really stressed at a point in their lives where they should be comfortable enjoying time with their family and not having to stress about things like money and income and, and sometimes just paying the bills and getting food. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have to be about being materialistic. It's just about the what money provides and that is freedom of choice and freedom of not having to worry and that sort of stuff. And I guess with um, Instagram, it's a very highly curated version of a person, right? Um, often we're, we're showing the best sides of ourselves or who we are aspirationally rather than who we are. I mean, if you've got a Lamborghini and you're 20 years old, good luck to you. But um, I guarantee a lot of them are rented. The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximize their claims and maximize their property education as well. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's um, it's just crazy. You know, I mean, we've always lived in such a materialistic world, but the rise of social media and particularly platforms like Instagram, it's done exactly what you said. It just, it makes people see some of these lives and, you know, see the absolute 1% or less of people and it starts to normalize it. And then suddenly people are, you know, drastically living outside their means uh, not taking care of themselves for the future. Um, you know, then there's obviously things like the mental health impacts that come from that as well when they're not succeeding to the level it seems like other people are. And like it's, it's a pretty hard life to be um, trying to lead when it's not really who you might be or, or what you, you really actually need in, in this world. It's a very valid point, I think. Um, and I have to say, I'm fighting the good fight on my Instagram feed. If you want to check that out, you'll see me with sticky taped up shoes uh, because they sort of still did work and I wanted to make sure they didn't fall apart and it did the job. So there's no Lamborghinis there. Let's get back to you, Lockie. Um, so you mentioned capital cities, regions, southeast Queensland. I'm trying to sort of zero in on your investment philosophy and I'm at a loss. <laughs> what um, what are the fundamentals? I mean, are there any? Do you prefer houses over units or is it yield or growth or corner blocks? Give, give us a hand. Well, uh, I can definitely see how you got to that that point of confusion there. Um, I think for me, there's probably a couple of core things that I, that I look at when, when I'm assessing, um, you know, buying a house or buying an investment. Um, I... I definitely only look to houses. I think that, you know, while you can definitely find exceptions to the rule and, you know, if you found a phenomenal unit in Sydney with sweeping harbour views, you're probably going to do quite well out of that. But I think as a general rule, housing and and the costs that are associated with housing are a a much better match than some of the things that come out of a unit. And, And a lot of that, I think, comes down to getting land content. You know, land is so important. I'm sure you understand that through your job. Um, mm-hmm. But the value is in the land, and the more land that you can get on a well on a well located um, property, there's so many more things you can do with that. Like you know, in the smallest one, maybe you just make some small changes to some gardens or some cosmetic things that make the house look better and and attract some better capital growth. 
And then up at the upper end, you know, maybe you're doing some full-on development. Maybe you're, you're, you're knocking over the house and building a unit block there. And that's that's an example where I think a unit block would be a great investment. Um, but then I think for me, the next things that I look at is that in today's day and age, particularly with lending, you know, it's negative gearing is extremely hard to utilize as as this as one of the sole um, directions of a portfolio because you just you can't get lending anymore so it makes it extremely difficult to be able to keep growing and that's what i think a lot of property investors want to be doing and that's continuing to build so i think that you know there's a few different pathways that you can take and but you have to be putting into your portfolio some properties that have some good yield because that cash flow will not only continue to ensure you're attractive to banks but if you do find that really good negative gearing investment that you've qualified and you think is really good that excess cash flow in your other properties should be able to cover the out-of-pocket expenses you might be experiencing so i think that uh they're probably some of the core things that i look at and then you know as you start getting down into some of the more micro bits of research um i'll leave that for some of our clients i think (laughs) <laughs> now, what about um, your focus into luxury property developments? Can you shed some light on that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my partner and I, like I was just speaking about, came up to the point where um, our lending was starting to get capped out by the banks and we had some really good equity available to us and, and cash, but we were finding that we weren't able to invest in some of the the properties that we wanted to because we just couldn't get the loans anymore so i sort of put on my finance hat and i sort of thought okay well what what else could we be doing here uh and i had some great opportunities come to me through some some personal channels about some syndicated luxury property developments and um in terms of the syndicates that they're, they're quite small they're not you know going into the hundreds or anything like that and um we assessed what was going on and it was for a development down in melbourne in the i believe it's quite a premium suburb in melbourne called camberwell uh and they were going to knock down a couple of houses and they were building some absolutely exquisite luxury townhouses in their place um and we jumped on board with that Wow, Camberwell is a pretty mint suburb. How did you, uh, has, has that completed construction? Are, are there any numbers you can talk to us about? No. So, well, I mean, I can talk some estimated numbers on the lower end so that I can, um, you know, cover myself where not spruiking huge stuff, but uh, yeah. it's still going. Um, unfortunately, we did have some impacts because of the, uh, the coronavirus shutdown, but fortunately, um, the developers have done some great work on sorting out other pieces other than the build that had to be done um, while they couldn't build. So our developers have been extremely proactive, which has been great. Um, I think for us, we're looking at probably a uh, 13 to 15% uh, ROI per annum for about an 18-month investment. Right. Wow. Not bad. Not bad work. You can get it. Absolutely. I think, and you know, for us, I think there's a lot of spruikers out there um, and a lot of people claiming, you know, you get this and this and this. And then when you start to delve into a deep, you see these hidden fees and these other things and then performance incentives. And by the time, you know, you've gone through the advertisement that maybe says like, oh, we'll give you 25% per annum. 
really when you run the numbers, you may be getting six or seven percent, but there's so much more risk involved and the risk for the return, certainly there's no compensation there. So for us, it was all about delving into the the specifics of the deal, making sure that there wasn't anything like that going on uh, and, and ensuring that the risk, because as, you, as you'd well know, property development is absolutely a risk, um, was going to be matched with a reasonable reward. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, 6 or 7% might sound good to a property investor who's used to purchasing houses or units, but 6 or 7% can be eaten up very, very quickly uh, on a development project. It's really not enough to, to justify that risk. Let's talk about Atlas Property Group. What was the motivation for actually starting that business? I think I love property. Actually, that, that makes it sound like a question. It's not. I love property. I think that was the biggest motivation. Um, my partner and I, you know, as we've sort of chatted about, you know, it's been such a big part of our life and we always knew that at some point uh, we'd, we'd like to have our own business and go into work with ourselves, uh, but we didn't necessarily know how that would look. And then, you know, one day, I guess, just sort of woke up and this idea had started to form in my head and I reached out to a few quite prominent buyers agents and, and had a chat to them about how they look. And to their credit, you know, I was someone who was possibly going to end up being a competitor one day. But I think that with the right people in the industry, there's a really great camaraderie and they were willing to chat with me and talk about their journeys and, and some of the things that they'd faced. And um, once I started doing that, you know, it just it just kept going and going and going and I, and I kept getting further down the pathway and and one day my partner came home from work and I said oh look you got to sit down I gotta have a chat to you about something and the first thing she said is what do you want to do now <laughs> so I then <laughs> said to her look you know you've got, got this, form I got this great idea I want to make this company and and you know we agonized over the name choice and and we we tried a couple and we kept getting getting it bounced back because of other companies having it um, and then eventually Atlas was made. I tell you what, it's extremely appropriate for me at the moment because I'm reading Stephen Fry's Mythos. So I've learned all about the Titan Atlas and him holding up the sky. It's a very, uh, very famous image and very strong name too, of course. So congratulations on that. Now, you talked about um, purchasing property across Australia with, with Atlas. Is there a key sort of niche or point of difference for you guys? I think one of the big niches is that, you know, we're really focused on the people and we want people to have an experience with us. You know, I think a lot of the time people get caught up, they become a little bit of a number. It's just about churning through buying properties and possibly having, you know, things like research um, and selection suffer at that expense. And for us, we, we, we want to focus on customer service and delivering a great product for our clients. And then on top of that, you know, we've got such a great educational background. We've also walked the talk with our own investments in, in, in property as well as development. So we've got some, some nice runs on the board there. And I think that there's probably not many buyers agents out there that can, that can talk about having done it, um, educated themselves about it, had some of the experiences in the military that, you know, formed my understandings of team leadership and planning and discipline and integrity um, you know, all those sorts of things that you want when you're dealing with somebody who's helping you make such a big life decision. Um, and I'm not sure that there's all that many buyers agents or property investment companies out there that can sort of offer it the way that we can. 
Not exactly the way, no. Um, certainly if you have trouble with tenants, you might be able to train some very high-caliber weaponry on, <laughs> on them. Um, let's talk the, the property market. What, what, what have you observed? Obviously, we're in uh, a bit of a state of flux. I'm interested in your thoughts on what you see for the property market over the next sort of 12 months. I think that that's such a great question and I wish that I had the crystal ball that everyone wants and so desires when they when they chat about property. Um, I think, in my opinion, there's been a lot, a lot of hysteria over coronavirus. You know, we've, there's absolutely been some, some um, lowering of prices and things like that, but you know, all, all these big media outlets, they always like to talk about, you know, the whole Sydney market has dropped when really the whole Sydney market might have dropped, but every suburb is different. You know, you can still find suburbs in every state that have experienced phenomenal growth over this time. It's not, it, people sometimes get a bit too stuck on the whole notion of it's, it's a whole market. Australia is one market or a state is one market. And it's just, it's such a fallacy and it scares a lot of people. Um, so I think that over the next 12 months, hopefully as we, you know, move back towards a, normal, a, a better normal way of life, we'll see some of that market commentary ease a little bit and, and that will help general consumers and home, you know, owner-occupiers, home buyers who aren't necessarily in it for an investment and play such a vital role in the growth of, of housing prices. And I think that what you're going to find is that in you know 12 months or 24 months or 36 months when we look back on this time and we do a bit of analysis on the property market i i, I know that it's not going to be as bad as what everyone has said or claimed hmm. at least i'll be interested on your thoughts it pretty quick yeah look I, I think when when the coronavirus pandemic really started to take hold and we were in lockdown the media is obviously talking about 30 percent drops and you know it does really make you wonder about the due diligence that some of the journalists go to i think you know people want to people want to read stories that are extremely positive or extremely negative and as a journalist it might be very tempting to 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 choose one of those extremes rather than saying look we're not really sure but it's probably going to be okay i mean who's clicking on that right um i i think a, a bit of a test will be the end of of september um this podcast may be released a little bit um post september but obviously that's a bit of a test with um job keeper version one sort of disappearing and mortgage payment freezes and that sort of stuff but the government has a, a very big vested interest both uh, state and and federal in the property market. It's where most of our wealth uh, resides. It's where most of the revenue from the states come from with stamp duty and those sorts of things. So I really don't see it being smashed in any meaningful way. There just might be areas where the rental vacancies pop up, as we sort of saw with some of the Airbnb issues. I think people will be yeah, moving a little bit away from the CBDs and, and looking for a little bit more fresh air and wide open spaces. What do you think? You're on the same page? Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think we've already seen that. I mean, I think one of the last stats that I heard about Melbourne CBD unit vacancies, it was something astronomical, like 30 or 40%. Uh, don't quote mm. me on that, but I think I read something that said that. Um, and I think you're so right. I think some of the stimulus, that there will be an effect on the market once it, it starts to reduce and then cease. Um, but 
you know, despite my 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 really good understanding of finance and economics, I can't make a prediction on on possibly how that might end up. I'm hopeful. I think you're right about state and federal governments and their and their vested interest. Nobody nobody wants the property market to crash. You know, it doesn't it doesn't help anyone. It doesn't it doesn't a correction of the magnitude that you know the outlets that you were talking about calling out thirty percent falls that doesn't that doesn't help anybody, any government, nobody, and it's just going to hurt the economy overall. So I think that yeah, the governments will definitely help to ease that burden if it was looking like it was going to have a very big negative impact but i think you raised an awesome point and that was people looking to maybe get a bit more fresh air and move out of the cbds i think that you know some of these region major regional hubs are going to see huge growth absolutely astronomical growth i mean everyone's known about sort of um ballarat and bendigo um, as, as two great examples over the last sort of four to five years and some of the growth that, that they've had. But I think that, yeah, some of those big major regional hubs could be primed for some phenomenal growth as people want to have a little bit more space around them. Maybe people are working a little bit more from home and, and their current house doesn't allow for that. And and with the rise of technology and being able to do video conferencing, maybe they can move that little bit further out of the city and still be able to keep the same job. And arguably then have better housing affordability anyway so yeah i think that there is some some really phenomenal points i'm not gonna i'm not gonna call out at this point that we're gonna see great growth in in those regional hubs but my my inkling is that um if you come back to me in in maybe two years maybe maybe that's where we will see some of the best growth over the over now to then Wow. Well, I'm going to have to wait a good a good bit of time to, to pin you on this one, Lucky, but I'll be back. Well, you mark how about my you, bring, word. you can bring me back every six months and then we can keep checking it as we go along. And we get another <laughs> right, We'll do status updates. Yeah, I, I think that the forced domestic tourism is, is potentially going to help with that as well because people can't go overseas, so they will be discovering new regions and kind of thinking, you know, like given that I'm now working from home, um, let's live in Orange or the Barossa Valley or I'm see, immediately I just think of wine regions. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> that, that, that's just me. I, you, you talked about your um, finance economic background uh, being sound but not wanting to do any crystal ball stuff. Let's talk a little bit more micro. When you are analysing an individual deal, how does that formal training help you to to cast that magnifying glass on the property and do a a better due diligence than someone without that training, do you think? I think it really comes down to a lot of understanding. Like, you know, I think one of the biggest metrics that people love to talk about is supply and demand. And everyone always talks about how, you know, what that means to them. But I think that when you've actually got some really good education in that, you're not just saying it for the sake of it and you're not just sort of understanding it and kind of hitting the nail on the head, you know, maybe five, six, seven times out of 10 because you actually understand the way some of these um, principles work. It means that you can understand what is truly happening, and you know anyone can sort of see supply and demand when you're talking about big outliers and you're talking about massive numbers on one side or the other. But as they start to become a bit closer, for example, I'll keep on the supply and demand train. As the numbers start to get that little bit closer, and it's not as easy to 
to get through the noise and understand what's going on, I think that's when you see the value in people who have quality education or education just in general about some of these financial and economic terms and methodologies because it's it's those times, you know, the the, the suburbs that might be past the bottom of a of a property cycle and on their way up. There's lots of pro- there's lots of suburbs and areas that sit in that area, but not all of them will will boom or or come close to a boom. And when you can understand metrics properly and understand the ones that all seem to be looking quite good and they all look quite similar, that's when you can start to draw out some of those ones and give good reasonings why and be able to tell a client or a customer, you know, they, it, this looks the same as this suburb, but what you don't understand is X, Y, and Z. And because of that, this should theoretically have a great result for us. And I think that's the sort of value you get. I love it. I mean, anyone can go out and buy an investment property, but the stats are telling us that we're not getting it right with 72-odd percent of people only ever sort of having the one property. So, yeah, I think doing it well requires an understanding of those those fundamentals. So that's good advice. Lockie, how can people get in touch with you if they want to have a chat? Well, please come and visit our website, atlaspropertygroup.com.au. Uh, we've got a great website there. Uh, we've also got a nice blog that we just we like to slowly update because at Atlas we have a really big big emphasis on education. You know, obviously, as you talked about before, I'm a bit of a masochist for uh, educating <laughs> myself, but I think that it's so important because you know I would much rather a client comes to me, I present them with something, and then they go, "Hang on, I'm not sure that you've actually analysed that properly." I would love that. Because that tells me that I've got someone who's educated, who's taking control of their own pathway, and they know a little bit about it so that they can work out what's best for them. I think that too many people don't quite understand or educate themselves as their own detriment. So our blog, we're going to continue growing it, and it's going to be a great spot for education. And then we've got our social medias. We're on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. We update all of them as well. Uh, we put up different media compared to our blog, so it's a really great place to follow uh, and get in touch with us uh, and, and just engage with with Atlas and and another or a great property company. Beautiful. Now, if there's one piece of advice that you could give to property investors, what would that be? Oh, it's such an awesome question because I could think of at least probably two or three that I would love to give. Mm, I think, against um, rules. Oh, <laughs> I think that the number one piece of advice I would give is is educate yourself. You know, I think somebody, I think there's a Warren Buffett quote that, that where he talks about how he hasn't made all of his money's money from the deals that he's done. He's made it from the deals that he hasn't done. And I think that mm. that is so applicable to property. If you're educated, you're going to know what's good versus what's not. You're going to be able to sniff out people who maybe aren't necessarily working in your best interest you're possibly going to be able to go out and do it on your own. Like, I mean, I'm probably going against what you should do for a business. But um, we and I am here to help people who might not have the education, might not have the time and, you know, plenty of other reasons. But if the reason is that you don't have education, we're going to help you on that. But you should be doing it a bit yourself as well because at the end of the day, the, the person who's going to look after your interest the best is you. And you've got to take control of that. And it doesn't have to be through university degrees it can literally be from reading books reading blogs 
reading online material and you'll start to get that good understanding and I think that that is the best thing that anyone can do for themselves in property, in investing in general and, and probably in life too. Probably some of the best advice I've ever heard as well. Lucky, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Cheers.